0: Okay, so today we'll uh, take a look at chapter 25 of Deuteronomy. So it speaks about justice when there is a conflict uh, between two people uh, in verses 1 to 3. And verse 4 speaks about showing compassion to animals. And verses 5 to 10, which is the longest section, speaks about uh, what happens uh, when when somebody is widowed, uh, what is the responsibility of uh, her brother-in-law. And uh, verses 11 and 12 speaks about the consequence when a wife interferes uh, in the fight between two males. And 13 to 16, we talk about uh, maintaining uh, weights and measures. What are the regulations? And the chapter ends uh, with why Israel must go to war against the Amalekites. So we'll start with uh, verses uh, 1 to 3, which speaks about uh, justice and what are some guidelines uh, when it comes to resolving conflicts uh, between two people where one is uh, guilty and the other one is uh, innocent. So maybe we can read verse one, two, three. Yeah, someone can read, yeah. When people have a dispute, they are to take it to court and the judges will judge the case, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. If a person, if the guilty person person deserves to be beaten the judge shall make them lie down and have them flogged in his presence with the number of lashes the crime deserves but the judge must not impose more than 40 lashes if the guilty party is flogged more than more than that your fellow istilate will be dragged degraded in your eyes yeah so here it speaks about dispute or controversy between two men and how it should be resolved And the goal of uh, taking it to the justice uh, is to make sure that there's justice uh, being served and justice uh, will be served uh, when the righteous uh, is justified and the wicked uh, is condemned. And that's a decision that needs to be done, taken by the judge uh, when the matter is taken to trial and the judge is able to make a decision uh, based on what he observes and what he's able to review. And we've seen before in Deuteronomy that uh, any justice uh, should be based on truth. Uh, It should be fair, it should be unbiased, and it should also be uh, delivered uh, in a timely manner uh, so that the person who's suffering, they don't have to suffer for long and the justice is served uh, immediately. And the guilty person, uh, even though they are guilty, they are still human beings, uh, so they should be treated uh, with respect and the punishment that is given should be based on the intensity of crime. And so it cannot be the same punishment for all the crimes. Uh, Each punishment uh, has to correlate uh, with the intensity of crime. And here it speaks about the total stripes, uh, which is the corporal uh, punishment or the way in which the punishment is uh, exercised uh, is through stripes. And there is a limit that is set, uh, which, which is that it cannot exceed 40. And also the punishment must be executed uh, in front of the judge uh, so that he is able to oversee and there is no abuse uh, of the guilty person. So these are uh, guidelines that can apply uh, even today. Uh, when we when there is a dispute, uh, we expect uh, justice uh, to be served. And we also expect that both the parties are treated uh, with respect and any punishment that is given uh, is consistent with the intensity of crime. And in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11 and verse 24, Paul speaks about his experience uh, where he says uh, of the Jews, uh, he received uh, 40 stripes minus one, which is 39 stripes, uh, five times. And many times the Jews, they are very uh, careful about the loss and they are very careful they don't uh, exceed uh, the number 40 so that they don't come under condemnation. So that could be one reason why they error on the side of going with 39 rather than giving 40 times and exceeding it by one or two. And we also see that uh, a similar principle is applied. Uh, we often use that. Proverbs 13, 24, uh, in the context of parents uh, disciplining children, but oftentimes uh, this verse uh, can be abused, uh, where it says, uh, he that spareth his rod, uh, hateth his son, and he that loveth him, uh, chasteneth him uh, bad times. So if, we often say that if you spare the rod, uh, you will spoil the child. So the intent uh, of the rod, uh, which could be It could be a rod, it could be a roller, it could be a belt, whatever it is, uh, that is used to chasten the children. And the idea is to, the goal is to instill uh, discipline and character in our children, but the belt or the rod, whatever it is, uh, it should be motivated by love for our children. So the punishment of kids, uh, it should not become an outlet for parents' uh, uncontrolled anger or frustration. And if that is the case, then obviously that will be parental abuse. Uh, It is not something, it is not an action that is motivated by love, but it is coming more out of the parent's uh, self uh, rather than the children's best interest. And also in Hebrews uh, 12, verse 6, we will see, for whom the Lord loveth, uh, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. So we know from this that the Lord will chasten us uh, when we are uh, disobedient or when we live a life that is uh, not pleasing to him, but the motivation is always love. And the same thing should be true uh, in the case of parents, when they are disciplining their children, uh, it should be motivated by love. And verse four uh, speaks about showing compassion to animals. It says, uh, you shall not muzzle the ox uh, when he treadeth out the corn. So ox is uh, employed or it is used uh, to separate the wheat uh, from the chaff. So the ox is made to walk uh, on the wheat and by walking uh, and the disturbance that takes place, the wheat and the chaff uh, are separated. But here we are told that the ox uh, must not be muzzled uh, as it walk as it works, so, muscle or any kind of belt that is tied to the ox, uh, if it's too tight, uh, it will prevent the ox from stooping and reaching for the harvest uh, and eating. So, the principle here is that uh, even though the ox is being employed to do your work, uh, it should still be treated uh, well, uh, just like uh, we saw last week, uh, that the laborers uh, are worthy of the reward and they should also be treated with respect. And Paul applies this verse in 1 Timothy five eighteen, uh, where he speaks about Christian workers or Christian laborers, or those who are laboring in the vineyard, that they should be treated right. So he uses the same phrase, uh, for the scripture saith, uh, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy, uh, of his rewards. So again, the same principle that the uh, God's servants, uh, they should not be abused, and they are also worthy uh, to be taken care of uh, and their needs uh, should be met. And verse uh, five to ten uh, speaks about the what is the obligation of the brother-in-law? Uh, if his brother dies and leaves his uh, leaves his wife uh, without a child or without a son, so what is the moral obligation of the brother-in-law? So we can read five through ten. Yeah.
1: If brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of an husband's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother, which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. And if the man like, like not to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate unto the elders and say, my husband's brother refuseth to rise up unto his brother a name in Israel, he will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak unto him, and if he stand to it and say, I like not to take her, then shall his his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders and lose his shoe from off his foot and spit in his face, and shall answer and say, so, shall it be done unto that man that will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him that hath issue loosed.
0: Yeah. So, here the context is if the brethren dwell together, so the uh, understanding is maybe it's a joint uh, family system, and maybe there are two brothers or more brothers uh, living together, and they are all married and one of the brother dies. And if that is the case, uh, what should the next uh, brother do? Uh, What is his obligation uh, to that family uh, or or towards that widow? And we see uh, there are a few goals uh, regarding the obligation uh, in terms of meeting the obligation, uh, is to provide for the widow uh, of of his brother and to protect the property rights. So the idea is that he would marry uh, his brother's wife and he would have a child uh, through her so that the property rights could be maintained uh, within that family. And also by having a child through her, uh, he is able to maintain the family name uh, to the next uh, generation. So if he doesn't do it, uh, then obviously it's quite possible that the widow may not be taken care of or her physical needs uh, may not be met and also, they may lose their rights uh, to the land that they own, and also, they won't be able to preserve the family name uh, to the next uh, generation. So, as you saw, the process is the widowed wife uh, would marry her brother-in-law, and the child would bear the name of the dead husband, and they would uh, inherit the property. And obviously, uh, the brother cannot marry the sister-in-law when the brother is alive. Then, in that case, that would be adultery and that would be prohibited, even as we read in Leviticus uh, 20 21. But there might be cases where the brother in law is unwilling to marry his uh, brother's wife. And that is what we see in the second section. And if that happens, uh, she can bring a complaint uh, to the elders. And the elders may try to talk to him, they may try to counsel him, Uh, they may uh, try to talk him. Into marrying her. But if he still uh, does not listen, then he is put to uh, public shame. And here we are told that the widow will spit uh, on his face and remove uh, his shoe. So that is symbolic. Uh, The shoe is symbolic of the property because shoe uh, is what we would use uh, to walk uh, over the property. (laughs) And by loosening the shoe, uh, it is implying that you're giving up your heritage or you're giving up your rights. And in 1 Timothy 5, 8, we see if any man provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, <laughs> uh, he has denied the faith, and he is worse than an infidel. So the Lord expects that we take care of our family, uh, we take care of our immediate community, and we saw that uh, even last week uh, when we talked about the gleaning, gleaning principle Uh, we said that even when the harvesting is done, a certain part of the harvest uh, should be kept for the poor, uh, the widow, and the fatherless, and so on. And when they refuse to do that, uh, it says, uh, so shall it be done unto a man uh, that will not build up uh, his brother's house. So it is seen as a moral obligation uh, to take care of your brother's family and in case there is a death. And we see an example of this uh, in Ruth chapter four, which uh, we are familiar with, where Boaz uh, redeems uh, uh, Ruth and he marries her. And by doing that, he is able to uh, keep the name in the family. So we can just read that passage in Ruth chapter four. Uh, in verse four, it says, I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these uh, seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, uh, do so, but if you will not, uh, tell me so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. So here we see that Boaz is approaching the next uh, kinsman so that uh, he can uh, buy the property and he can redeem it. And if he refuses it, then Boaz is willing to step in and that is what happens here. Uh, initially, he says, I will redeem it. Then when Boaz says, uh, you not only have to redeem the property, but you also have to marry Ruth. Then at, the, at that point, he refuses uh, to marry. He was only interested in the property. Uh, he was not interested in marrying Ruth. And that is when Boaz uh, steps in and he marries uh, Ruth. And we read in verse 8, so the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. And in verse 9, we see Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi, all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon, who were the two sons. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, Uh, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are my witnesses. So here we see that Boaz is stepping in uh, as a kinsman and is performing the obligation that we talked about in Deuteronomy 25 and that is how Boaz and Ruth uh, became husband and wife. And we also see that Lord blesses uh, that relationship. Uh, And as we read in verse 13, uh, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth uh, to a son. So by doing that, uh, all of these goals were met. Uh, Boaz was able to provide for the widow. Uh, He was able to protect uh, the property rights, uh, keep it in the family. And he was also able to continue the family tree. And verse uh, 11 and 12 uh, uh, speaks about wife uh, interfering uh, in a conflict that is taking place uh, among two men. Yeah, maybe you can read, yeah.
1: When men strive together, one with another, and the wife of the one draweth near, but to deliver her husband out of the hand of him that smiteth him, and putteth forth her hand, and taketh him by the... Secrets. then thou shall cut off her hand, then I shall not pity her.
0: Okay, so here we see an extreme uh, situation where two men are in conflict and the wife is uh, interfering in the conflict. Maybe she wants to protect uh, her husband or maybe she's just carried away by emotion and she's not able to see uh, that her husband is engaged in the conflict and maybe uh, he is losing in that conflict. So whatever the situation might be, uh, it seems like she is stepping uh, into this uh, situation and she's causing uh, bodily harm to the other person, uh, which results in the castration of the man, which means uh, he will not be able to uh, have children uh, because of what she did. And because of that, uh, she faces uh, extreme uh, punishment. And it is told that her hand which caused the damage uh, will be cut off. So the severe uh, punishment that is outlined here to the wife, uh, it would serve as a deterrent to any wife uh, who wants to interfere uh, in a conflict and cause damage uh, to the other person. And we don't see any incident uh, in the Bible, so it's quite possible that these guidelines uh, served as an effective deterrent and nothing like this happened. So what we see is that the wife may have good intentions uh, of protecting her husband, uh, but the way in which she did it was obviously not acceptable, it was not valid. So our actions uh, may not always be good, even though we might have a good uh, ending in mind. Uh, We also have to keep in mind that the process uh, should also be the right uh, process So the end uh, may not always justify the means or what we do to get there should also be the right way. So we might (coughs) want to be rich, but the process that we use uh, to become rich uh, should also be correct. And verse uh, 13 to 16 uh, speaks about uh, accuracy and scale uh, while we are doing business or while we are doing any kind of trade uh, that involves uh, buying and selling. You can read
1: 13 through 16. Thou shalt not have in thy bag diverse weights, a great and a small. Thou shalt not have in, th- th- thou shall not have in thine house diverse measures, a great and a small, but thou shalt have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure shall thou have that thy days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. For all that do such things And all that do unrighteously are an abomination unto the Lord thy God.
0: Okay, so of course today we have uh, digital scales, but in the olden days, they used to use all kinds of things uh, to measure. Like even back in India, we see that they use all kinds of things uh, to measure weights. But here the emphasis is that when you're using scales, they should be accurate uh, when you're doing any kind of dealing so that uh, nobody is cheated. Uh, in the process. So no cheating is allowed uh, for private gains. And obviously if you're cheating, that would be equivalent to stealing. So when you're buying and selling or when you're involved in any kind of transaction, uh, the weights and the measures uh, should be accurate. So the underlying principle is that the trust uh, is very important uh, when you're doing uh, transactions of buying and selling. And if you if you take away the trust, Uh, in that relationship, then obviously the whole uh, system will collapse. Uh, If you're going to a store, and if you're not really sure uh, whether they are using the right weight and measures, then obviously uh, it's not going to work if it happens in a large scale uh, around the business. And the Bible also says that false weights are an abomination to the Lord. And again, in Proverbs 11.1, it says... A false balance uh, is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight uh, is his delight. So obviously the emphasis uh, is on truth. So anything that we do uh, should be truthful and there should be no intention to hide the truth or in any way try to manipulate the truth uh, for our personal benefit. And in the same way, we've seen the scriptures many times that hypocrisy Uh, is unacceptable. It's an abomination to the Lord. So again, uh, that is a way of cheating where we are trying to uh, project ourselves as something that we are not. So that would be an example of false balance uh, in our personal life, where there are inconsistencies uh, in the way we live uh, on different days. And the last uh, section speaks about the war against uh, Amalekites, which we saw earlier in the book of Deuteronomy. And we can read verse 17 through 19.
1: Remember what Amalek did unto thee, by the way, when he were come forth out of Egypt, how he met thee, by the way, and smote the inmost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee, when thou wast faint and weary, and ye feared not God. Therefore it shall be, when the Lord thy God hath given thee rest from all thine enemies round about, in the land which the Lord thy God, thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it, that thou shalt plot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Thou shalt not forget it.
0: Yeah, so these are the instructions given to Israelites and we can see that in three verses, uh, they are told twice. Uh, In verse 17, it says, remember, and in verse 19, it ends by saying, uh, you shall not forget it. And when we read the Bible, uh, there are many verses that keep reminding us that we need to remember uh, certain things and we should not forget uh, certain things. But obviously in our weakness, uh, we oftentimes forget what the Lord is trying to teach us, we oftentimes forget the instructions that are given to us. And even the entire book of Deuteronomy is just a reminder uh, to the people of Israel uh, not to forget the Ten Commandments, not to forget the various laws uh, that the Lord taught them. And many of the principles are repeated uh, many times, uh, even within the same book, uh, so that people don't forget uh, what the Lord is trying to teach them. And we know from previous chapters that Amalekites, uh, they were the descendants of Esau. And when the people of Israel, when they were uh, going towards the promised land, the Amalekites, they attacked uh, the Israelites and they attacked from the back, which means they attacked the people uh, who are walking slowly or who were at the end of the line. And that would be, the assumption would be those who are at the end, Uh, they are people who are weak uh, maybe they are the older people, maybe they are sick, or maybe they are the women with children who are walking slowly. So, the Amalekites they attacked from behind, and uh, which was not right. And we see that God does not approve uh, of that cruelty uh, toward his children. And the punishment was that they should be destroyed uh, completely uh, because of their actions. And this, uh fight against the Amalekites, Uh, it continues uh, for a long time. Uh, In fact, it goes all the way to King Hezekiah, which is when the final victory is achieved. So we'll just read a few passages. Uh, The first one uh, is from Exodus uh, 17, where Joshua is victorious over Amalekites uh, when they come to war, but obviously it was not the entire Amalekites uh, who came to war, which means uh, even though he was victorious, uh, they were not completely wiped out. So we read in Exodus seventeen eight, then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim, and Joshua uh, discomfited uh, Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And in verse 14, and the Lord said unto Moses, write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nissi, uh, for he said, because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And that is what we see in history, the war with uh, Amalekites uh, extended from generation to generation because uh, the Israelites, uh, they were not able to completely wipe out the Amalekites uh, for a long time. And just uh, one more passage from 1 Samuel 15, verses uh, two to nine. It speaks about uh, Saul uh, going and fighting with the Amalekites. And again, uh, he doesn't completely destroy the Amalekites. So that would be an example of partial obedience, uh, which had uh, consequences. Maybe someone could read 1 Samuel 15, uh, 2 to 9.
1: Thus say the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both men and women, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. And Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. And Saul said unto the Kenites, Go, depart, get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For ye showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they come up, out of Egypt, so the Canaanites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul smote the Amalekites from Helia, and until thou comest to shoot, this is over against Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But mm-hmm. Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of sheep and of the oxen and of the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was wild and refuse that they destroyed utterly.
0: Yeah, okay, so there is one more example where uh, the instructions are very clear that Saul should completely destroy the Amalekites, uh, both men and women and children and also all of the ox and sheep and everything else. But as we just read, uh, we see that uh, Saul, uh, even though he's victorious over Amalekites, uh, but he separates the good uh, from the bad, and he tries to keep uh, everything that is good, the best of the sheep, the oxen, fatlings, lambs, and everything that was good, uh, he did not destroy but he only destroyed the things uh, that were refused or that were not good. So again, this is an example where there is a victory uh, that is uh, accomplished, but since the victory does not fully uh, satisfy the Lord or the victory is not an example of complete uh, obedience, uh, in God's eyes, uh, this would still be disobedience. Uh, In God's eyes, uh, this would still be a defeat. Uh, even though it seems like a victory uh, to Saul. And later on, we see that Saul uh, pays a heavy price uh, for this uh, partial obedience. And in 1 Samuel 28, uh, 17 and 18, uh, we see that Saul loses his throne uh, for failing to obey the Lord uh, fully. And the Lord had done to him as he spake by me, for the Lord hath rent the kingdom out of thine hand and given it to thy neighbor, even to David, because thou obeyed not the voice of the Lord, nor executed his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore had the Lord done this thing uh, unto thee uh, this day. So again, that's a warning for all of us. When the Lord uh, asks us to do something, uh, he expects a complete uh, obedience. Uh, when we do only partial things based on our convenience or based on our preference, Uh, God sees sees it as disobedience, and he would keep back the blessings, Uh, he would keep back his favor, and he would uh, chastise us uh, for partially obeying him. So that is a lesson for us to learn, Uh, even as Saul lost his throne, uh, we can also lose our blessings uh, when we fail to obey the Lord fully uh, based on what is revealed to us, based on what the Lord commands us to do. So we see that the conflict with the Amalekites uh, it continues uh, for a long time, uh, through the judges and through many kings, and the final defeat of the Amalekites comes much later, uh, during King Hezekiah' time, where it says in One Chronicle four forty three, and they smote the rest of the Amalekites that were escaped, and dwelt there unto this day. And the continuing uh, battle with Amalekites uh, it is also seen. Uh, as the inability of a believer uh, to secure a complete victory or the conflict uh, that we have with sin and with temptations, uh, even after we are born again. So that is a persistent fight uh, of a believer. And Paul speaks of that struggle in Romans chapter 7, where he says in verse 22, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man, But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Then he goes on to say in 24, poor wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So it speaks about the struggle for a believer where they're not able to attain uh, complete uh, victory. And there is a conflict that is going on between the flesh uh, and the spirit. And the only way we can attain victory and the only way we can live an overcoming life uh, is not through our willpower or not through our uh, personal uh, strength. Uh, It can only happen through the grace of God and through the power of the cross. So we can try all we want. Uh, If we do it in our own strength, uh, we will also keep failing to achieve complete obedience or complete victory, uh, which would lead to more uh, frustration, uh, more discouragement, just like Paul. But as Paul says, uh, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that he can have complete victory. Uh, when we come to New Testament, we'll close here, uh, which speaks about the teaching on enemies. So in case of Amalekites, uh, the Lord told them to destroy them completely, uh, which uh, speaks about vengeance, uh, which speaks about taking revenge. But when we come to the New Testament, uh, we see a different way of approaching our enemies. So in Matthew 5, 43, 44, we taken from the Sermon on the Mount, uh, it says, you have heard that it hath been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy, uh, which is what they did with the Amalekites. They hated them. But uh, here it says, I say unto you, love your enemies, uh, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. So that's the higher standard that is expected of believers uh, in the New Testament. We not only have to love our friends, our neighbors, but we also have to love our enemies, and especially those who persecute us. So we see that believers uh, in many countries, in many regions, uh, are persecuted for their faith. But even though they are being persecuted, the Lord calls them to love uh, their enemies. And again, one more verse from Romans 12, 19 through 21. Uh, It tells us that we should not take justice uh, in our hands because vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. So no matter what injustice uh, we may face in this world, uh, we should not take it in our hands. We should simply uh, commit it to the Lord and our attitude uh, towards our enemies, uh, those who oppress us, should still be an attitude of love. So it says, therefore, if an enemy hunger, feed him. Uh, If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing thou shalt heap uh, coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. So it speaks about uh, if you're trying to uh, extinguish a fire, uh, you don't use fire to extinguish a fire. You use water uh, in the same way here it says, overcome evil uh, with good. So we see that in the New Testament, uh, the operating principle uh, is the love, uh, just like the Lord loved us and gave himself for us. uh, In the same way, we need to love those who hate us and those who persecute us. So that's chapter 25, it's a short chapter. And in verses uh, one, two, three, we saw that uh, if there is a conflict between two people and they come for justice, Uh, the justice uh, should be done uh, immediately, and the justice uh, should be based on facts. It should be unbiased, and also the justice uh, should have some limits uh, based on the degree of punishment. And here the limit for corporal punishment uh, was 40 stripes, which is the max. And we also saw that uh, if you're going to use animals uh, for our benefit, then we should also make sure that the animals are well taken care of. Uh, Just like if you are hiring laborers uh, to do our work, uh, we should make sure that they are treated well and they are respected. And in verse five through 10, uh, we talked about the obligation of a surviving brother uh, toward his widowed brother's wife. And here we saw that uh, if if the brother dies, the other brother should marry his wife uh, so that she could be taken care of uh, in terms of our physical needs, but also the property that is there could be retained in the family. And more importantly, the family name of his brother uh, can be continued to the next generation by having uh, children through her. And in verse 11 and 12, we saw that if a wife interferes uh, in a fight uh, between two males, And if she causes uh, damage uh, to the other person, then she would also be punished. And in this case, uh, it speaks about cutting off her hand for the damage caused. And in verse 13 through 16, we saw that uh, when we are using weights and measures uh, in transactions, uh, we should make sure that the weights and measures are accurate and we are not trying to cheat others uh, by using uh, weights that are not accurate. And, and finally we close in 17 to20 where Israelites were told to go to war against Amalekites, uh, because the way they treated the Israelites uh, in showing cruelty to them, uh, but at the same time in New Testament, we saw that uh, we should show love uh, to our enemies and leave uh, vengeance uh, to the Lord, who will bring justice since he's the God of justice.